I could uh, get your attention. Can, can everybody hear back there? Is this about right? Is the volume good? Okay. All right, this is our ninth lesson in a series of ten. And so I hope you enjoyed the enchiladas. Yes, I was asked for a light meal, you know, low calorie. And uh, next week should be good, too. We're going to have uh, turkey and dressing, and we're even going to have gravy next week. <laughs> and so I think you'll like it. So don't miss uh, next week uh, the, the finale in the Book of Romans. We are in... We continue uh, in Romans chapter 8 today. Last week we finished up in verse 11, so we'll pick it up again today. If you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to Romans 8, verse 12. And you know, one of the things that, that we find uh, that it's like a mystery that Paul's going to reveal the answer to the whole world really is confused. They're, they're, they have a misunderstanding about the role that suffering and evil plays in the plan of God. They, they don't really get it, and people say, they even go so far as to blame God for the evil that's in the world or the suffering, the pain that's in the world, or even worse, they deny God uh, because of evil. So the whole world is confused about what's going on in the world and it's very much like uh, this clip from Abbott and Costello. We went way back into the archives. <laughs> All right. That goes on for about 20 minutes, so I figure <laughs> you had as much as you could take. <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, and so what Paul's going to do in Romans 8, uh, if, if you remember, the, the, what, the progression of thought is brilliant. In starting in chapter 6, Paul talking about living the Christian life, living uh, righteously, holy lives that reflect who we are in Christ. And in chapter 6, he establishes that we don't continue to sin. We now logically are going to follow Christ's example. And because we're in Christ, we're going to be like Christ. That's what makes sense. So we leave the old person behind who sinned regularly, just practiced it, and didn't even know what he, you know, he was doing anything wrong because he's just living by his own desires. Now we live the life in Christ. But chapter 7 says there's a problem there. And so he goes through the progression in chapter 7 of, yeah, we should live like him, we want to live like Christ, but chapter 7 reveals the problem. And it's, you know, typically called sin nature. And so he says, I know what I want to do, but I find that the physical body wants to do something else. So it's like a dilemma. He says, I want to do this. I want to do what's right. But too often, I find the members of my body doing the opposite of what I want to do. And so he ends chapter 7 with wretched man that I am. So he finally just comes to the conclusion, I can't do it alone. I'm not equipped to lead the perfect life or the righteous life that Christ led on my own. So who's going to help me? 
wretched man that I am, he says, who will save, set me free from the body of this death? And then, of course, in 25, he gives you the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God has not only saved you, the answer uh, for your sin saved you so you're forgiven, but now he is also going to provide the enablement, the empowerment to live the holy life as well by giving us his spirit. And so the uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, is about God's gift to us, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all who believe. And so he reinforces that, that that is a fact, that everyone that believes in Jesus as his Savior, uh, he or she has also been indwelt by the Spirit of God, who God has given to enable us to keep the law. So in Christ, the law can now be fulfilled because we're completely forgiven positionally, we're there, we don't have to worry, we're freed up now, and also God has provided His Spirit to lead us and teach us and guide us, to convict us, etc., so that, he's, as He says, we can walk according to the leading or live our active life in accordance with the Spirit of God rather than the leading of our fleshly lusts and desires. And so... He, he uh, finishes that train of thought in verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, by saying, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so that's the Spirit we're talking about and the power that we're talking about. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, he can surely give life, spiritual life, now to your mortal bodies. So that's what he says God is doing currently in your life. He won't violate your free will. You're still free to choose to do good or evil, but God has enabled you, given you the power so that you might keep his law, okay? And that spirit of God is also changing you from the inside out so that now you have a heart for God's law. You actually desire to keep it. So verse 12 through 14 is kind of the, the summary or the of the conclusion of that, he says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. So now that you've been forgiven and now that you've been indwelled by God's Spirit and you have the ability to, to change your life and to live a Christ-controlled life, you're, you're under obligation. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die, meaning separation from God, must be separated from God. But if you live according to the Spirit of God, you're putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. That, that, that putting to death the deeds of the body, I mean, you are dying off. That part of you, that sinful, lustful part of you is dying off. You're starving it to death, you might say. You're filling yourself with the Spirit and starving the flesh in a way so that you become spiritually mature. And now in chapter 14, he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So established fact that God is there leading you, trying to get you to cooperate. If you'll just let him run your life, he will. And that's our goal. That's what we're hoping. That's what we want to do. That's how we want to live. And now God's going to help us to do that. And so this lesson, if you got the, the uh, printout that I send, the white paper that I send every 
Wednesday or Thursday or whenever. Uh, it's called Groaning for Glory. Uh, hopefully everybody got it. And if you haven't read it yet, make sure and read it because uh, I, I think it's kind of a, a revolutionary concept and explains you know, the, the trouble that we have now and explains the purpose uh, that God has for the evil that's in the world, the suffering, the problems that we all have. And he's going to say here in, in this section of Romans 8 that we groan within ourselves. Uh, and, and groaning, if you look it up, I look it up in the dictionary, and a groan, we, we all do that, it's a deep moan indicative of pain, grief, or annoyance. So just think, of, every time something bad happens, you may not even notice it, but you kind of go, oh, God, not again. You know, that's a, that's a groan because you're tired of this. It's a strain. It's a, there's a tension there, and you want it to end. You don't want this to happen again, right? So I think every, everyone groans instinctively, maybe even without knowing it. And so Paul uses that image of us longing for, anticipating our new resurrection body. We, we know that that will mark the, the true end to all the trouble and pain and suffering, the evil that's in the world, when we are resurrected and God ends this sinful world and recreates the paradise that we originally meant to have. And so he says, now you must suffer for a little while, and as you do, you groan longing for what's better, but as we suffer, we look forward in anticipation to that resurrection. We look forward to the end of evil and the new body that God's going to give us in the new world, the, the kingdom of God as well. So we groan within. And if you look at that concept, uh, I looked it up, you know, where that word's used throughout Scripture. And it's all through the Old Testament as well. In Psalms, David says, you know, David wrote quite a few laments, you know, because he had that poor guy had a lot of trouble. And he says, I groan. He says, listen, Lord, consider my groaning, all the trouble that I've seen and the problems I have. And then in Exodus, in the book of Exodus 2.23, you know, the people were living, the people of Israel were living in slavery. And the text says, that they groaned under the weight and the travail of the slavery that they were subject to. In Lamentations, after Jerusalem is destroyed, the prophet uh, Jeremiah writes that the people groan from their troubles and, and the priests groan under the weight of the invasion and the siege of Babylon. Later on, about 100 years later, Ezekiel wrote, of the groaning of the few righteous men that were left. They groaned, longing for right, the righteousness of God to come back to Israel. So the general theme of that groaning is that things are just not right. We long for everything to be right. And as you look at your own life, you, you know what I'm talking about. We all have this. You know, I want things to be just right, everything to work, but there's always flies in the ointment, as they say, right? There's always something, there's always a spoiler that comes in and messes things up and causes us trouble. In the New Testament, that New Testament use of that word groaning is all about anticipation. We're looking forward to something. We know something is missing. We're not complete. And we anticipate 
what's better. What's, what's here now is, is good. God's done so much for us and blessed us. But we know that he has something better in the future for uh, us, and we look forward to that. And so the context today in Romans 8 is, is about that. Uh, it's about present suffering compared to the future glory. And if there was anybody that could know about that is Paul. Now the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, who wrote the book of Romans, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, you'll see he is talking about his problems that he's gone through and the suffering and persecution he's been through. And it says, I went, I've been beaten times without number. I've been jailed a dozen times. I've been beaten with rods. I've been whipped with 39 lashes three times. I've been uh, shipwrecked. I spent two days in the ocean floating around until somebody finally saved me. He said, I've been through some trouble. And not only that, in the same, in the chapter 12, he says, God blessed me by taking me to heaven in the spirit, and he let Paul in the spirit, what, exactly what that means, I don't know. I don't think Paul knows. But he got to see the glory. He got a taste, a vision of the glory that was in heaven. So when Paul wrote Romans 8 and compares the suffering of the present time, this is a guy that's seen more suffering than all of us combined, I would guess, if you read all the stuff that happened to this poor guy. And at the same time, the glory that he's speaking of, that he's comparing it to, he's witnessed that too. I, I, I take it no one else here has been to heaven like Paul, right? Please don't raise your hand. You'll... <laughs> so Paul's seen it all, done it all, knows exactly what he's talking about. He's experienced it firsthand. So he can write this, and we, we feel what he's talking about, and he knows what he's talking about. So as you, as you look at the text uh, in verse uh, 14, he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are sons of God. And so what does he mean by being led? Uh, primarily, what he's saying is being led by the Spirit involves several things. One is conviction of sin. So suddenly we're more sensitive to the conviction of sin. We, we're more aware of who we really are. The whole world's running around out there thinking, I'm okay, you're okay. Right? They wrote that book. Everything's cool. I'm me, and I deserve all the good things. I don't deserve the, you know. But Paul says, no. The Spirit of God is convicting the people of God that they're incomplete without God, that they need Him. And as you sin, you become more sensitive to the sin that, that, that's going on, the weaknesses that's in your life. So the Spirit of God is leading you in this area to clean up, to overcome those weaknesses. Also, uh, the Spirit of God is leading you uh, in the sense of what theologians call sanctification, which means being set apart for God's purposes. It's a, it's a, a fancy term to mean spiritual growth. You are changing from the inside out. God's changing your heart 
so that you actually remove the weaknesses and you actually begin to live like Christ because of the changes that are being made within you. So the Spirit of God is leading all of those who believe in Jesus. So he says, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. In other words, you're not going to be forced into this, leading to fear again, but you don't have anything to fear anymore. You're free, but you have received a spirit of adoption. God's the, the, the law, he's kind of giving a comparison between the before and after. Before the law kept you under its thumb and you could never keep it good enough and you always felt guilty or hid it. You became a, maybe even a hypocrite. But now this new spirit of law, the spirit of God in you is different in that you're free. And he has brought you into his family spirit of adoption as sons, as children of God, by which we cry out, Abba, which means in, uh, daddy, actually. It's, a, it's, it's not just father, but it's like that close, intimate term, daddy. So Abba, father, intimacy, fellowship is, is what he's trying to impress upon them. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it gives us assurance that we are in this relationship in which we are being led by God's Spirit and changed from the inside out. So the Spirit of God witnesses, gives assurance to our spirit within us. Something's going on within us. And if children, or since we're children, same word, we are heirs also. So as all children uh, quite often get some kind of inheritance, you know, to varying degrees from their parents. He says, being in this new family of God, God has given us the inheritance along with Christ. So all those things that Christ is inheriting, we also, that's why the New Testament can say, we will rule in the kingdom, we will rule and reign with Christ. We will be with Christ. And that's what he's saying here. We're heirs. We have an inheritance in heaven. So if children, heirs also, heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with Christ. So that's part of the relationship that we have, right? Like, I, I believe it or not, I played in a golf tournament last week, and me and my partner, best ball, me and my partner had five birdies. He had five, I had none. But we, we had five birdies. And we won, and even though I was completely worthless, my name is still on that trophy. Right? And so that's, that's just like our relationship with, with Christ. He's done it all. He's the one that got on that cross. He's that cross. He's the one that atoned for sin. But in our relationship with him, it's me and him. <laughs> and, we, and I'm a fellow heir of everything that God has given him. And that's what he's saying here. So since we are, in, we are included in that inheritance, 
what can we look forward to? He says, we can look forward to what? Now, this is a problem. We get to look for what did Christ go through as he lived this life, suffering. But what, did, what does he have now after the resurrection? Glory. So what have we got to look forward to? Suffering now, glory then. Same thing. We're in that relationship with Christ. So in that relationship, we're going to have the same experience that he had. Remember what he told his disciples in the upper room? The world hates me, so it will hate you. The world is, is against us because it's against Christ. So for now for a while, we must suffer in every way. We, we suffer physically. We suffer uh, emotionally. And when you have the heartache that, that life can throw at you, all the things that can happen, uh, we have health issues. We're going through an aging process. And at the end of the deal, uh, most of the people in the world are fearful of death. And we even are, are scared of it. But at the same time, we look beyond that in hope because we know just as Christ also was resurrected, we will be and we will have in the future the same glory that he has. So suffering now, glory in the future. How long is now? It's not very long. That's the good news. You know, if you were doing a timeline of eternity, of course it would go infinity. But if, but if you could make your longest line you could make, and now, the here and now that we, our life is just a little bitty speck compared to the eternity that's promised us of glory in the future. And that's why in verse 18, look what Paul can say. Because it's just for a little while now versus eternity, here's the comparison. And this is great. This explains, this passage is going to explain suffering, uh, pain, evil. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. So a comparison of suffering now versus glory then. The suffering now is so short-lived and minor in comparison. I know all of our problems seem so insurmountable and terrible, but what Paul's saying, I've seen both. Paul said, I've seen the suffering, man. I've been whipped and beaten and imprisoned, stoned and left for dead. I've seen that. It's bad. It's painful. But I've also seen the glory of God. And I can tell you that in comparison, suffering now for a little while is nothing compared to the glory that you're going to get. It's his personal eyewitness account. You can trust him. This guy is credible compared to the glory that has to be revealed to us in the future. For, so naturally you're going, well, why? If, if I'm in this relationship with Christ, if I have the Spirit of God, why do I have to go through all this trouble? If I'm in the family of God, surely I'm exempt. Not so fast. No one's exempt. Literally, and as the Bible says this, it rains on the good and the evil at the same time. Jesus said that. What did he mean by that? He said, 
We live in a fallen world affected by the original sin. It's been cursed by God going all the way back to Genesis 1.29. And we are all subject to that during this lifetime. Look what he says. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation. So not only do we look forward in anticipation, not only do we long for it, the whole creation is going through something. The whole creation, he says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God is you and I being resurrected. We won't, who we really are in Christ will not be revealed until the resurrection. People ask me all the time, they go, will we know each other in heaven? And I always say, you don't know each other now. <laughs> Think about it. I don't know what you're thinking or what's inside you or who you really are. I, all I can have to judge, all you have to judge of me is appearances in what we say and do and what we look like. But God made us, if you go back to the original creation account, he created a paradise, the Garden of Eden, and the last thing he made was the man and the woman. After he made everything before that, it was good. But when he made the man and the woman, how did it change? It was very good. It's like, man, this is complete. I've done it all. And I have made man in my own image, God says, to have a loving relationship with me and gave him a dominion mandate to rule over this perfect creation that he had made. See? Underneath God's authority. With one little test, one little caveat. All I ask is that you obey this one deal. So, you know, faith, belief, love is not faith, belief, love unless it's tested and revealed to be. So he gave him this one little command. Look at all the thousands of trees and, and fruit-bearing plants and the grain and everything. You can have it all. But I'm going to have this one little tree here, and you can't have that. I'm going to put that right in the middle so you have to look at it every day with a sign that says, don't eat the fruit. Just one little test, right? And it's simple, it's easy, it's visible on purpose. Nobody could say, oh, that's the tree? <laughs> or, I didn't know. I wasn't here that day. You know, or whatever. You know, there's no excuses. It's very simple. There can't be no understanding. And they disobeyed, and God said, if you disobey, you shall surely die. And then in chapter 3, we learn what he meant by that. You shall be separated from God in every way. Uh, you'll physically die eventually. You'll age and die for the first time. And you'll be spiritually separated as well. And eternally, you'll die. Okay? Not only that, God said, and think of the logic of this. If God created you and I, to have a loving relationship with Him, to have a loving relationship with Him and serve Him and glorify Him. If that's your purpose, how do you 
throw everything out of whack and ruin everything by violating the very purpose that you were made for. And that's what they did. And so what God said is, you're going to try to go out there and find fulfillment without me. But I know that's self-destructive. So God cursed the creation in uh, Genesis 3, and he did it for a good reason. Our limited minds can't imagine how a loving, good God could do something like that, how bad something good can come out of what seems to be so bad. But God, with his omniscient, knows that this is what we really need. How can God bring us back, the human race back, to that relationship? How can we ever know what it's like to be out of that relationship unless we experience it? So what he basically said was, oh, you want to disobey? Go ahead on. I'm not going to force you. Let's see how that works. And it doesn't work. And we find out the human race historically and up till now and until the resurrection knows, experiences that there is no fulfillment apart from a relationship with God. And the clearest example of that, proof of that, is death. Right? The statistics on death are, are impressive. They're very impressive. Nobody gets out of here. And it's all because of sin. And so God says, I am going to curse the world in hope of your redemption that you'll experience what things are like without me and you'll come back. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Look at it with me. After he's saying the anxious longing of not only us but creation as well because the creation was subjected to that curse. Even the ground was cursed. They went along eating everything they wanted and life was great and the job they had was easy and fulfilling. Then all of a sudden, everything changed after the curse. They had to sweat and hard work and the fear of death and all this came in. Natural disasters, diseases, the whole deal. So that creation, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, meaning the curse. I'm going to fix things so that they don't work, so that there's no futility, that there is futility without me. There's no fulfillment without me. So the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. It didn't do it. God did it. And he did it because, it says, because of him, God, who subjected it, and this is the key. He did it in hope. Why did he do that? It says, in hope. God hoped that we would come back to him because life just doesn't work without him. Alone, apart from him, there's just something missing. We groan for something better. We have a burden that we can't get rid of. We have issues that can't be solved except with God. So the creation was subjected to futility, and believe it or not, God did it for a good reason, to redeem 
mankind. So verse 21, the hope is that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. So the whole thing, when we are revealed, as he said before, in our resurrection body, in the kingdom of God, this world as we know it now, with all its trouble, all the diseases, all the problems that are here, natural disasters, all that will end, and it will be set free as well. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as we receive our glorified bodies, the world itself will be fixed also. You can look at 1 Peter 3, and he goes through that. He's saying, you know, and in the end, when Christ comes back, this world will be destroyed and recreated by God just as our bodies will be recreated with new, perfect, eternal, resurrected bodies. He goes on to say, uh, verse 22, For we know, what do we know? That the whole creation groans. So there's that groaning. You know, This is personification. Obviously, inanimate objects can't talk or make noises like this, but it's a personification. The whole creation longs to be fixed. It's messed up. It wants to be fixed just like we do. And so we want to return to that state of paradise that God originally created. And that's what he's talking about. And so the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. So it's a great image of a woman, you know, pregnant, nine months, delivering a baby, the, the pain, the agony, but at the same time, she's willing to go through it. Why? Because of the hope of the delivery that's getting ready to happen. Something better, something great is getting ready to happen. She's got to go through the suffering now for a little while for that greater good of the delivery of her child. So it's a great image, right? That's what's happening now. Everything that's wrong with the world now is like a woman going through the pains of childbirth. But we who know God know that when that baby is delivered, so to speak, the metaphor, everything will be fixed. And it'll all be worth it. The glory surpasses the pain. So he's telling you in verse 23 that that applies to us. Not only this, but also we ourselves having having the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we've, we've been given the Spirit of God, so we've got a taste of what spirituality is like, a taste of what righteousness is like. So we got that taste, and we long for the completion. We look forward to the completeness of that, of that righteousness. So having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, looking forward to that wanting what's better, what's complete, what's perfect. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Just think of these poor old messed up bodies, you know, with all the imperfections and we look forward to that perfect resurrection body that's eternal, that doesn't age, that doesn't have all the issues, right? You won't have to put a new knee in every 20 years or hip or whatever 
you know. And we groan, we look forward to that, we anticipate that. We long for it, the redemption of our body. For in hope, so we've got the hope of that, we believe in it, it's desired expectancy on our part. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? So we haven't seen it yet, but we believe in it. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So what is he saying? We live now, we persevere. We overcome all the trouble, all the pain, all the suffering. Because we have that hope and we look forward to that. Perseverance. Verse 26, but remember it's not just us, the Spirit's with us. So he says in the same way the Spirit of God also helps our weakness. So we're weak. We struggle, we cry out, but God has given us help to overcome, to persevere. For we do not even know how to pray. We don't even know what's best for us. What do we pray typically when we run into trouble, when you get sick, when you have an illness? What You pray, take this away. But God knows what you really need, what's really best for you. Sometimes you need a little adversity to shape you up, Right? Don't you need a spanking every now and then? <laughs> this guy does, I know. <laughs> so the Spirit of God intervenes for us on our behalf between us and God, and he uses that same image of groaning, with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, God knows what we need. God knows what we need. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God has a plan for our lives that's better than anything we could have imagined. God has an end game, that glory that Paul talks about, that's there for us. Wait on it. Verse 28, but what about all the trouble now? That's great talking about the future, but you don't know about all my issues, right? So that's why verse 28, okay, I know, Paul says, I know you've got trouble. I know that there's problems out there. But look, God is with you, his spirit's with you. God knows what's going on. And look what happens, verse 28. This is the providence of God. Have you ever heard that phrase, the providence of God? This is what it talks about. God uses all the circumstances in your life. It's like putting one of those giant puzzles together. He puts every little piece in there so that at the end it's complete. Whenever I look at one of those that's about halfway done, I immediately go, that, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I couldn't do that in a million years. If I had to sit here for my lifetime, I couldn't finish that. But God knows how all the pieces fit. And he knows what it's going to be like when it's complete. And so he can say in verse 28, no matter what's going on in your life, Paul can say, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now to do that, I mean, the only way that's even possible is if you're 
omniscient and omnipotent, all-knowing and all-powerful. Oh, yeah, God is. We'd like to be able to say this. Well, I'm going to work this out for the because I'm so smart and so able and so talented. No. But God can do that because of who he is. And guess what? All things work together for good. What, how do you define good? Typically, we would define good as, okay, we're going to get rid of all this stuff, and then life is going to be good. I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket because I'm going to win the lottery. That's good. And you lay out all this wonderful stuff you're going to have and the good health and the whole day. No. Paul's already said that we've got to go through suffering now, glory later. Good is defined in verse 29. In God's economy, how does he define good? Look at verse 29. For whom God foreknew. So all the, all the people that believe in God, God knows. And he has predestined them. This is God's plan for their for your end, the end game, the final result of all this that we're going through is what? He has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of Christ. That's where we're all going to end up. Suffering now, glory then. No matter what problems you have now, you're going to end up there conform to the image of Christ. You're going to be just like Christ then. That's the providence of God. You have a free will to do whatever you want until then, but God is going to see that you end up there. Isn't that great? You make all these mistakes and you've got all these weaknesses, but we know the end from the beginning. We know how the thing ends. That's the best way to persevere if you know how it's going to end, right? So if you're, you know, anybody playing the Cowboys, you know how it's going to end. <laughs> Whoever you are, whatever team it is. So you just keep playing the game because you know how it's... And so he goes on with this, this kind of progression of thought, okay, God foreknows you, and he's got a hand. He's working in your life. The providence of God is true in your life and mine. And so he continues the progression in verse 30, and whom he predestined, all those people that God foreknew and is working in their life in that way, he predestined these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, so God is providentially working in your life and, and has foreknowledge of you as, as believing in him. And more than that, because of what Christ has done, the atoning work on the cross, you're justified. You are legally declared innocent by God based on what Jesus did. Justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So everyone that's been forgiven, that has Christ, can look forward to that glory that he's been talking about. So what shall we say then to these things? What things is he talking about? The suffering, the trouble, the stuff that you, the problems you don't think you can fix, that can't, you know, insurmountable. What shall we say to these things? Here's what we can say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that great? Whatever trouble you're going through, God's with you. God's for you. 
He's on your side. And he's got the end figured out already. He who did not spare his own son, you really think that he would send his own son Jesus Christ into this cesspool of a world to be mistreated and die the worst kind of death on the cross for no reason? No. He's going to complete this. He's going to finish it. What he started, God's going to finish. So the argument from the lesser to the greater, or greater to the lesser, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And by the way, earlier when he said in verse 28, I looked up the Greek term for causes all things. You know what it is? It's the word, Greek word is the word we get synergy from. Synergy. And so I said, okay, what does that even mean? Uh, here it is. The, the working together of various elements to produce a greater effect than each element acting separately. Isn't that great? Center, there's a synergism that God is working out putting everything together, the various elements together to produce a greater effect than each element acting separately. Great example, table salt. Everybody uses table salt every day. What is it? It's made up of two poisons. Did you know that? I swear. Sodium and chlorine. Both by themselves, you have too much of it, it's poison, but put together in a synergy, it's table salt. That's just like all the stuff that's going on in your life, God is going to use for good in the end. That's synergy. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to charge you with something if God's on your side, if he's already justified you? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Nobody can condemn if he's justified you. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's a pretty good deal. Your lawyer is also the judge. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God loves you, and that's why he's done everything that he does. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, sword, violence, all these things, all the stuff going on in the world, can any of that? No. And he quotes uh, from Psalms, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So all that stuff that's bad that's happening, we conquer. How? Through Christ. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, to, all the powers that are in the world, nothing, nor height, depth, or any other created thing. In case he left something out. Nor any other created thing. Got it all there. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're in that relationship. We can't be taken out. We can't lose it. We need to proceed forth based on that, with that kind of hope and that glory. Let me uh, conclude with a story uh, many of you may uh, have, have read her book, Joni Erickson Tada. You've probably heard of her. 
Uh, just a little background, as a young girl, she swam in Chesapeake Bay. One day, while diving in, her head struck a rock, and it broke her neck and her back. Uh, and from that day on, she's been paralyzed from the neck down, quadriplegic. And she went through some really hard times, some tough times, self-pity, depression, etc. But in time, she was able to find herself as an artist. She puts a paint, somebody puts a paintbrush in her mouth, and she paints. And she's also become an author. Here's one of her quotes. We are not always responsible for the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but we are responsible for the way we respond to them. We can give up or we can look to sovereign God who will engineer our circumstances to reveal himself. I am now comfortable with my circumstances. I see that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift that God used to help me conform to the image of Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and the hope that's in it. We look forward. We look through all the pain and suffering and trouble, and we look forward to that glory that you've promised. And because you're the all-powerful, all-knowing God, we know that you can deliver we look forward to that inheritance with Christ to reign and rule with him forever in glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.